So a lot of what we deal with here, and I, and I even overheard a conversation behind me after the service about there are areas uh, all, all around us that have transitioned over the years, right? And when we say transitioned, what we mean by that is um, there has been a shift in the demographic of that neighborhood um, for some time, where um, particularly, where's Chris Lyons? There he is. Particularly, um, we, we had a discussion last week about Whitehaven, and over the years, over the decades, that's an area that uh, has transitioned from a demographic standpoint, and there are lots of discussions that go on about um, what, what, is the, what are all the issues and uh, pathologies and things that go on in the transitions of neighborhoods, and what does that mean for us as we um, try to connect with those neighborhoods as well. Um, I'll, I'll say this, and then I'm going to ask Chris to tell a quick story because it's really interesting to me. Chris comes from that neighborhood originally, right? And <clears throat> 1960, that's a good vintage. That's a good vintage. Um, and if you haven't seen the, in the paper recently, Southland Mall, which is kind of like the heart of that community, uh, was, was going to put up a Christmas tree, and the Christmas tree they put up was so pitiful. It was like Charlie Brown Christmas in their minds. They're like, we don't want that tree to be our tree. We've had glorious trees in our history, and we'd like to see some of that um, manifest itself again now. And they had to do a, I'll, I won't tell all the story, I'll let Chris do that, <clears throat> about what happened there. But um, in those discussions are things that we have to wrestle with, like um, uh, what is it that the Christian viewpoint, the, the worldview, says about uh, places? Um, this would really be a Bob Barber topic, but um, I can give you a couple of quick statements. Um, God has a great interest in geography and places. If, if you're not familiar with that, just go back and start reading through. God is very committed uh, to places. And um, even places that have seemingly been uh, abandoned in some ways or transitioned in other ways or uh, whatever, the, whatever the issues are. And um, Jim mentioned it this morning in the sermon, Brian Fickert uh, spoke at a gathering where we were uh, talking through some of these issues of justice and um, racial issues in neighborhoods and transitioning areas. And sometimes our thinking is this. So here's a good place to make sure you're tracking with me. Because you might be thinking, um, I'm still doing introductory comments. I'm not anymore. Um, sometimes we think this way. I would really like Whitehaven to be more like Germantown, or more like Hernando, or more like, and we think that way. We, we start saying things like that. I really like Whitehaven, or Orange Mound, or um, you know, my neighborhood, my, my stomping ground is Millington. I really like Millington to be more like Arlington, or more like, we, we, we think that way, and we, um, and we understand what we mean when we say that in, in lots of ways. We want, um, Bob said this years ago, it sticks in my head, if you sit down with groups of people from, let's say, Orange Mound or from a gated community, uh, really well-off gated community, and ask those uh, participants in those communities what they really want, those lists would be identical. What they really want for their neighborhood are really identical. You would hear things like education and safety and all those. They're identical things. Um, but we start thinking about um, places and, and transitions and problems in terms of Man, it wouldn't it be great if Frazier was more like Germantown? If Frazier was more like uh, Piperton? And 
And I would say uh, Fickert's uh, comment was, was compelling. We don't really want Frazier to be more like Germantown or Orange Mound to be more like Hernando. What we really want is for Hernando and Orange Mound and Frazier and Germantown to be more like the kingdom of God. That's what we want. From a Christian worldview, that's what we desire. It's for all those places to look more and more like the kingdom of God. So they had an issue in Southland. I'm going to turn it over to Chris. Chris, give us a quick story on what happened in Southland. Amen. So our topic for today in terms of justice and a follow-up, we're going to do black and white, which is today. Um, I have a few uh, moments on that and a summary of the questions we asked over the last month. And then next week, I like to, uh, next week, there's no next week, the next time we get together, uh, I can do one more topic um, specific to justice on the unborn. And so we'll, take, we'll tackle that together. Um, so we've talked about the Southland Mall, and in, in this uh, chapter on black and white as an epilogue to the book, Thaddeus Williams talks about um, redefining of terms, uh, that, that we're in a day and an age where a lot of the definitions are changing, and it's not inconsequential. It actually has a lot of impact on how we address things, right? So I'll give you some examples. Um, I'll use the one that is so simple, marriage. We have redefined marriage as a culture. Um, Obergefell is the, is the Supreme Court case, uh, which, by the way, if you do your homework on that case and what it was about and the background of it, there are no homosexuals involved. It wasn't about marriage. And yet it changed the definition of marriage from a legal standpoint from the Supreme Court. It changed it all, right? So marriage used to be one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship, right? And that covenant relationship defined all of sexual purity to be free inside of that relationship. You are free to enjoy all of that inside the marriage relationship, covenant marriage relationship between man and woman. The definition now is, cha- is, is changed to include, it's, it's not anything yet, but it's, it's soon, to be, soon to be more expansive, uh, but it includes um, two people that have no husband or no wife. You've got to think about that one for a second. Two people that have either no husband or no wife. Uh, two wives, two husbands, right? Uh, in that definition, that, that is a new definition legally from the Supreme Court of marriage. It is not a biblical definition, but it is a legal definition. Um, this past week, the, um, we had another piece of legislation come through that is intended to address what happens when this Supreme Court may overturn a Bergefell, because they may. But when they do, there'll be a law that's now in place that says uh, marriage of many kinds are now protected, including polyamory. Um, that, that, by the way, it's going to get more and more bizarre as we go. It's just going to get more and more bizarre. That the, um, the number of things that will be included in the definition of marriage will be stunning uh, to us, to us. But in those redefining of terms... Uh, it's also affected our approach to the, the, con- the concept or the topic of racism. Uh, we've talked about this before. Racism is not a topic in the Bible. Ethnicity is, but race is not. Racism is a relatively modern construct uh, to talk about uh, categories of people, which is really the goal, is to put people in categories. Because the minute you do that, you can start tribal warfare. You can actually start tribal warfare when you start putting people in so many different categories. Um, the others are now set at odds to each other. Um, and it begins to, begins to build distrust amongst those different views. 
<clears throat> the new definition of racism is not just prejudice, which used to be that was the, that was the definition, is you had a preconceived, pre, uh, predetermined, um, bent against people that were different from you in whatever category. You had a preconceived bent from that. The new definition of racism is prejudice plus power. Prejudice plus power. In other words, you can't be racist if you're not in a position of power. You can't be racist if you're not in a position of power. Because racism is now defined as the prejudice that we used to call racism added to you also have power. And so in the cultural uh, uh, malaise that's talking about racism, um, a lot of it has to do with if you've never been in power, you can never be a racist. You've never had any kind of um, influence of significant um, uh, degree, then racism can't really be charged to you because racism now has to include the dynamic of power. <clears throat> well, Thaddeus asked these questions, Thaddeus Williams asked these questions about this new definition of racism. Does it generate false conclusions? Does that new definition of prejudice plus power generate false conclusions? And he says, uh, let me give you an example. So when the Nazis were conquering all of the known world, along with their, um, their Axis friends in Japan, as they were conquering all the known world, um, they were seen as, they had power, they had prejudice, they were clearly racist, right? Uh, at least as their, as their mantra was being promoted. As they started to lose, and they did, and thankfully, as they started to lose, and lose big, with the entrance of many others into the war, does their loss and loss of power become less racist? According to the definition, the answer should be, yeah, they're less racist now because they have less power. But it's not true, it's not accurate, it's not even logical. <clears throat> does it blur the meaning of power? So, um, as uh, President... Barack Obama served eight years in the top office in our governmental system. Uh, that should have been, a, according to this definition, an end of the conversation of, of uh, racism as a systemic issue because now you had somebody who was in office with power who was not racist, <clears throat> who um, should have kind of settled all of that, which um, in a sense there was a lot of hope for that. <laughs> There's a lot of hope. That would be the case. It just didn't happen. Um, and you can also think of it that way in terms of <coughs> other political bodies who are in power, who may not look like us. Does that then end the discussion on um, racism because it's prejudice plus power? So um, the other example I would give you is Uganda. So um, I picked Uganda because I've been there. So I'm traveling to Uganda. Uh, the, the history of Uganda is pretty rancid, uh, particularly in the last 100 years, 50 years, <clears throat> where Idi Amin is in charge of the Ugandan uh, governmental system and does atrocious things with his people and his own children uh, in public, uh, on the street corner to prove how much power he has. So does the minute... Does the minute that Sean lands in Kampala, and I come from a country who, according to the, the cultural definition of racism, I'm in a group that's had power, and so I'm clearly racist, 
<clears throat> now I'm in a country that is dominated by someone that doesn't look like me and governed by someone that doesn't look like me. So is that automatically the end of my racism because I'm now landed in Kampala? And the answer is, that's crazy. The whole, the whole discussion is not logical. So the new definition of racism is affecting how we're thinking about all of these things. And what we really need is a, a biblical uh, approach that will help us navigate those difficult waters and understand what God declares as <clears throat> real issues of, um, of injustice, uh, whether it's based on ethnicity or other categories. So uh, we're going to resume our review of the 12 questions, a quick summary, and, um, and p- make sure that when we're done, you've had a chance to at least think through the, the biblical topic and the cultural topic. So these are just the, the 12 questions on slides, and then we're done, and we can ask questions. So the first one is this. <clears throat> Under the category of biblical justice, I'm going to get some help to read some things. Uh, Byron, would you read under biblical justice our first question, what we talked about um, some time ago? Yeah, we basically said there's no other gods before me. If you're going to start a discussion on justice, let's start where it should start. Does God get what he's due? If justice is giving people what they're due, what we need to start with, does God get what he is due? Which is all allegiance, all honor, all glory, And if your view of justice doesn't include that, you're not going to have a good view of justice. The cultural view says, somebody read that for me. That's good. Very good. The the entire essence of the breakdown of the thinking of social justice as a cultural item is that it erases the creator-creature distinction. In other words, there is no God and us, and God has all authority over us. It is, we really have that essence, it's us, And now I can start saying, by my authority, by my definition, what things are and are not. And that's the beginning of injustice. That's the beginning of injustice is when I say my authority is now the authority. And and by the way, this is kind of what we're swimming in right now. Uh, A very good, close friend right now who says, nobody can identify me but me. And the issue with that is you will change your definition of you tomorrow. What, what do the rest of us do then? You will change your thinking on who you are next week, and then next month, and then next year. Because most of us are dealing with all kinds of uh, baggage and backdrop and issues. Uh, there's confusion of all kinds. Everybody's broken. And the reality is we need somebody outside of us who is authoritative to tell us who we are. And somebody has done that. Uh, next question. If somebody will read the biblical justice side, the current cultural justice definition or activity is, somebody read that? Yeah, so um, if your view of justice promotes or uh, inspires joy, peace, and patience, uh, if it has as an outcome those things, you have a biblical, uh, at least an understanding of how the Bible defines real justice and real outcomes, um, if, however, your view of justice really inspires more uh, suspicion, distrust, and fear, then you don't have a good view of justice. That, if that's your outcome, if that's what you inspire, you're going to have issues with the real definition of justice. Keep going. Let's go to the next one. Somebody read the biblical justice side. And the alternate view in the culture? 
Yeah, so, and by the way, if you read the cultural side for me, it doesn't mean you believe it. So you, don't hesitate. Don't hold back. Just jump right in. Um, in. In the Bible's view of how we are united, it is in Adam, we're all sinners. And for those who believe, it's in Christ. Um, and that, those definitions and identities mean something to unite us. I can no longer say, uh, it's your issue, it's your problem, it's your sin, because I am in Adam and I am in Christ, right? That makes a difference in how I view things and how I view people. On the cultural side, it's, if you give people enough categories to break them down and separate them into those identity groups, then you can begin um, the distrust and the fear and all the other things. Next one. While the cultural side, let's just pause there for a second. This one's pretty simple, but it really is sort of a diagnostic question. If your pursuit of justice leads you to be patient in taking offense, then you, then you probably are on the right track of what the Bible describes as justice. If, however, you're triggered all the time and offended by everything that you see and encounter at every turn with every commercial, then your view of justice is um, really, really broken. If, you're, if, if your immediate response is, I'll take offense, because the next thing you're going to do is really wicked, really wicked. We'll take a look at it. Next. Biblical justice. Pause there for a second, and somebody read the cultural side. I'll be a little bit, uh, we, we, we've gone through this, I'll just hit it again. Are there systemic issues? Of course. But those systemic issues are developed and maintained and supported by individuals who also have twisted hearts. And each of those individuals who have twisted hearts have but one answer to change that heart. There is no transformative power other than the gospel. I've said this before, I'll say it again, and Jim and Bob and... Chaz will say amen. This, this church has put all of its chips on the gospel as the transformative power for communities and people, right? The cultural answer is, no, 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 no. All these problems are really systemic. People generally are okay. But the systems are the problem. And if you can address the systems, and, um, and by the way, call those systems as, or frame them in a sense where the, addressing those systems is a gospel issue you ought to do this because that's the gospel. Then activism becomes um, kind of obligatory. And if you don't seek to help, by definition, you are now the oppressor. By definition, you're now the oppressor. Now, you didn't hear me say there are no systemic issues. I said there are systemic issues that come from a result of people who are wicked, uh, twisted, evil by nature, who move about in this place and have positions and power and, and those systems get supported those same ways? And the answer is the gospel. Uh, by the way, I'm okay with using the law. This will be a topic for those who hear this and are interested. I'm okay with using the law as a way to bring good. But I am not, I will never be convinced that the law will change your heart. I am okay with using law as a way to do good for the community, but I am never convinced that the law will change your heart. Uh, next one. Somebody read biblical justice? And then the current cultural justice. Their infinite guilt. We, we read some of the uh, current authors who espouse this uh, current social justice, unbiblical, wicked 
view of it that basically says if your skin tone is lighter, you are by definition guilty. Not just guilty, you're infinitely guilty. And your real conversion is to give up your lightness. Um, all of that is wickedness. All of that is a, is a creature, a creator-creature distinction that's just been broken, that God had God's, God's um, diverse view of how he's created the planet, for why God scattered people all over the earth and gave them different cultures. Um, it, it denies all of that. It denies God's view of justice. It denies any real um, understanding of how God is at work in the world around us and basically says, uh, by the way, this is, you have to know, um, this whole discussion of uh, horribly bad justice, call it social, call it whatever, we're going to have to do something about it because even the Bible, as Jim mentioned this morning, talks about social justice. It talks about it. I'm talking about the distinction that the culture uses as a definition. It's primarily a Western thing. If you go to other places, um, you know, particularly third world places, this is, not, this is not the topic we talk about. We talk about how, what God is doing at work in the, in the places and communities around them, um, opportunities to, uh, to see the gospel flourish. We don't really talk about your tone, your skin, your skin tone, how much melanin you have, is really how much guilt you have. That really happens in the Western world. It really happens here. Uh, particularly in our universities. Ooh. I'm throwing it out there. I'm throwing it out there. You want to you you pray for a, a wave of influence and change? I would say pray for a wave of Christian school teachers and university professors that God would go and, and help um, bring light in dark places. That's what I would say. Next. Somebody read that one? That's right. And then the current cultural justice says... Right, so um, here's the distinction in this particular uh, question that Thaddeus dealt with, is that righteousness, um, particularly self-righteousness, is filthy rags before a holy God. But in the, in the current cultural justice view, in what's going on in the culture, your righteousness comes from sharing those views. Say that again. Your righteousness comes from sharing those cultural views that say, uh, these are the oppressors over here, and we're the oppressed. And you need to share our view, and that's where your righteousness comes from. And if you don't share those views, you don't have any righteousness. Right? The biblical view is, you don't have any righteousness anyway. That all comes from Jesus. And whatever is right is by definition what, that, what Jesus as king says about uh, what's going on, guilt and innocence. Not what some cultural construct um, that, by the way, Tim read it earlier, that takes any history and looks for the most damnable parts of that history and makes that normative. Right? Makes that normative. Nothing about the benefits, nothing about blessing, nothing about improvement, nothing about progress, nothing about, I mean, um, man, I don't want to set anybody off. I, I'm just going to, it's amazing <clears throat> um, the amount of uh, freedom and progress and things that have happened here that are just not talked about at all. At all. Too strong. Not, not enough. Not enough. Next. Somebody read the biblical justice side? Oppressor and oppressed. <clears throat> That's right. So truth is essential in loving God. You, um, 
Love and truth are the DNA of Scripture. If you read Second John, he uses those terms back and forth. Love and truth, truth and love, truth, love and truth. Um, truth is essential if you're going to understand real justice and, and really have an understanding of what cultural justice is not getting, right? Truth becomes an essential part of that, uh, essential part of loving God. And acknowledging the real oppression does exist. Nobody's saying it doesn't. Nobody's saying it doesn't. If you leave here and say, Sean said there's no real oppression, that's wrong. You'd be committing a violation of the ninth commandment. Because I didn't say that. That real oppression does exist. But it's not, um, it's not the way to reduce all of God's world into the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, God doesn't allow you to do that. God doesn't allow you to do that. Uh, the current cultural justice says... So this is where the wickedness becomes super wicked is all that truth that you're talking about, Sean, is the result of the history of the oppression. It's where the, the, the thinking of this, you, you guys have this religion of the, uh, the oppressive class. Even your Christianity is the religion of the oppressive class. Your, even your definitions of truth are part of the oppression. Um, if you don't think that we're not battling with principalities and powers and wickedness and spiritually dark places, I don't know what you're thinking. Um, of, of course there are people that oppose the church and oppose Christianity and oppose all those things, um, but the, the motivation behind all that is we have an enemy who wants us dead, who wants us wiped out. Praise be to God, that can never happen. He can take me, Right? if God so allows him. He can take you if God so allows him. But he can never destroy the church. He can never destroy the truth. He can never destroy the salvation that is accomplished in Jesus. That's what we're dealing with is any, any claim on truth is really the oppressor class uh, imposing your view on us, which is why we really need to have an answer for, do you think that all of these views that we have as Christians came from Western, white, Caucasian people? didn't. One of the definitions of things that you know are true is if it's true for every culture, for every class, for every ethnicity, because it's true. And Christianity's hotbed was not Naperville, Illinois. Christianity's hotbed was not some white suburb. Christianity's hotbed was the Middle East and North Africa in a time where we didn't even exist as a country, right? Um, it's, a, it's a misrepresentation of where, where things that we know come from. Next. Somebody take that one. And then the current cultural justice. Everybody understand what telos is? Telos is purpose. Teleology is a study of purpose or being. or what's, what's your, When we ask the question, is what's the chief end of man, we're asking a telos question. That purpose is established by God by our Creator. Our purpose is established by Him, <clears throat> and that means that our freedom is defined by His will. Um, John Stott, phenomenal book, uh, contemporary Christian back in the early 90s, uh, one of the first books I read by John Stott, he basically gives the illustration that I've heard all of my favorite preachers now use, um, basically that uh, if you're a fish, and you're inside of a fishbowl inside your house, and you're swimming in the water in that fishbowl, as long as you're in, you know, in that water, you're free. Absolutely free. You can go anywhere you want in that water, right, as a fish. 
if you get a running start, if you're the fish, and you get a running start, and you pop out of that bowl, and you land on the carpet, you have found death. Unless somebody finds you and picks you up and puts you back in the bowl. But you have found death. If, however, you get a running start and come out of that bowl and land in the pond in the backyard, you found more freedom. And all that makes sense because we have to define what our purpose is based on what God says his will is for people. How he, does that, how he defines and designs things. The current cultural justice is that human telos is self-determined and that anyone who challenges your telos that you determined is an oppressor. So my, my good little female friend, about this tall, about this big around, who's struggling mightily with who she is, where she's going, why she's here. Right? Anytime we have a discussion about, are, are you sure that you want to be the one that determines all of that? Well, early on when we had those discussions, her first response was, you're oppressing me. No, I'm actually loving you, caring about you, desiring for you to understand more and more of who you are and why God made you. But that is the instinct is, if you disagree with my own purpose and what I tell you my purpose is, you're the oppressor. Next. Somebody tackle the biblical justice? Current cultural justice? Yeah, so um, this, this is where people end up talking about tradition, traditional stuff, and that's your, that's your problem, you bigot, because you're a traditional person. Uh, no, it's a, it's a historic, um, not just even in Christianity, but in lots of places, where male and female distinctions are good. Not just good, but very good. Um, it is very good that you're female if you're female. It's very good that you're male if you're male. Um, Randy was talking about this last week in our discussion. Uh, it seems like if you're male, you're in trouble. And uh, what God says is, if you're male, that's very good. And if you're female, that's very good. Um, for those of you who have raised daughters, you know that this conversation comes up in your house. It came up in mine. Why did God make me this way? Why did he not make me male? particularly when she is, in some ways, more gifted than a lot of guys I know, and yet she knows her, her place of service is going to be very specific, and so is mine. And so is mine. Very specific. But that's a biblical view of justice based on the distinctions being very good and celebrated, and, and really celebrated. And let me just say this. I can't speak on behalf of the whole church, but I will say, if you've ever been not celebrated uh, because of your very good distinction as a female or as a male. That's a mistake. Uh, we, we, God celebrates that good distinction. And we should as well. On the cultural side, the heteronormative sexual and gender norms are oppressive and the liberation of all sexual views is good. That's, that's the cultural approach is your idea of design and um, um, creation ordinance is part of the problem. That's part of the problem. I don't know where we're going as far as the definition of marriage is, but I'm going to tell you it's going to get wild before it gets calm. It'll get wilder before it gets calm. Last one. Yeah, the biblical justice side, it says, full humanity and worth of unborn persons. The current cultural justice side says, yeah, um, I'm going to be sensitive to this because I know um, in every church right now there are women who are sitting there who have experienced this in one way or another, and it's very sensitive and it's, um, it's horrible in many ways. Um, so I'm really careful with that because I know that it, no, every church I've ever been in has had women who've experienced this um, and, and want to know what, what does God say about this? How do, how do I, how do I, um, how do I experience God's love as a result of what Christ did for me? But 
um, the, the, the biblical view of justice says that anybody who's human, of any class, and of any ethnicity, are fully valuable humans made in the image of God and are, are worthy of your justice, worthy of giving them what they are due, which is dignity and respect, right? Um, they are worthy of those things because they're made in God's image uh, regardless of what you think. Uh, Jim even asked, added to um, the, the quad, the quartet, uh, maybe even those who are touched by disability, and there's, there are those who are touched by severe disability um, who are born into this world and are image bearers of the most holy God and have value and worth even if you don't think they do. Outside cultural persons. Even if you don't think they do. While the culture says abortion is not an issue about... It's, it's almost changed its tune. It's not really an issue about unborn children. If we were talking about that, we could get to the point. It's really about how are you going to tell any female what they can and cannot do? Right? How can you tell any female what they can and cannot do? Well, only in this case. What if that other person is a person? What if that other person is a person? So um, I'll spend a little time next week on the, the uh, libertarian view of abortion. Sort of the uh, uh, politically left view of abortion and even some problems with the politically right view of abortion different from what we just read that all, all, all human beings are image bearers of the most holy God and are worthy of dignity and respect it's not uh, a political football where you can say well you're just oppressing people I get what you're saying I get that you're saying if that person has uh, autonomy they can do it um, you and I put up with laws all the time about what we can and cannot do with our bodies. All the time. All I'm saying, all Thaddeus Williams is saying, now I'm saying, and you're saying, is what about that other person that's involved in this scenario? Is that a person? And if that is a person, then the discussion becomes very different. Very, very different. 